0: The most popular question I've gotten since last week was, how many verses are we doing tonight? (laughs) By the grace of God, we will finish chapter one because Will gave me a time schedule and I only have four weeks (laughs) and I've looked at other church websites and some people get eight weeks and nine weeks (laughs) and Will gave me four weeks, but I believe in a God of miracles. So here we go. So the theme of Jonah, as we mentioned last week, if you weren't here, is God's message for all mankind. And uh, where we're going to be picking up, Jonah has received a commission from God to go and rebuke an evil city to call them to repentance. And he decides he doesn't want to do that. He'd rather leave the service of the Lord in a way that he hops on a boat for Tarshish and goes as far uh, west as he possibly could go to try to get away from serving the Lord. And we don't know how far into the journey, but in verse 4 there, uh, God sends a storm out to the boat to kind of rock it a little bit. And uh, we mentioned last week about kind of in in our walk, we're, as Christians, we're kind of only ever in one of four places, right? We're either going into a storm, we're in a storm, we're coming out of a storm, or we're in between storms. Okay, like that's normally, you can probably be at one of those four places in your life. And as if to prove a, a Prove that point. The Lord is. <laughs> I, I was probably for a while there. I was like, "Yeah, we're kind of in between storms. Like the, the water's calm. It's great." And then the waves kind of started getting a little choppy in our life and my family's life. And then some things happened this week where it's like, "And you're in a storm again, Eric. Welcome, welcome back to the storm." So it's been great for me to kind of practice, literally practice what I preach here. But tonight, as we continue on, beginning in verse 5, we'll see how the sailors on the ship and Jonah react to the storm. And we'll also see how God uses this encounter to display his rescue plan for all mankind. So we'll begin in verse 5. It says, then the mariners were afraid and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. And it says there that the mariners were afraid. Like these are very seaworthy individuals. These are the Phoenicians. These are the ships of Tarshish we talked about last week. Like they're known for their sternness. They're known for their seaworthiness. Like these are the these are the. The men that you want on the boat—these are the the white-bearded, yellow hat, like yellow boots and coat kind of seamen that you want on the ship. They're out there. They're seeing their sea shanties. You know, there's those kind of a guys that you want on the ship with you. So if it's saying that the mariners are afraid. There's reason to be afraid. Like they've been through storms before. They understand what it's like to be out in the ocean. These are the guys. If they're afraid, there's a good reason to be afraid. And that for a storm of this magnitude to kind of come out of nowhere, come upon them really suddenly. It would, I would assume that they knew that this was something different. Like this was not your normal, everyday, just bad weather storm. There was something different about this. Well, What's even more concerning is the fact that Jonah's actions had put their lives in danger. Their lives are in danger because of what Jonah did and only because of what Jonah did. And there's a lesson, I think, there for us because whether it is evident immediately or not, or even if it never becomes evident to our eyes, the reality is that our sin affects other people. Our sin affects other people. We may never even see how it affects them or the after effect of how it affects them, or it might be affecting them in their heart. My sin affects my wife. My sin affects my kids. It affects my church family. It affects my friends. And the same goes for each one of us. Our sin affects other people. And that's why it's so incredibly selfish and incredibly prideful when we sin because we think it's all about us. It's about, I want to do this decision regardless of how it affects other people. And that's what Jonah has done. And I don't know if this was necessarily Jonah's intention. It's not like he knew the Lord was going to send a storm and like almost kill everybody. But the reality is our sin affects other people. And the mariners' lives Now being in danger are simply part of the consequences of his disobedience. His life, his decision has put their lives in danger. And so these big, tough men have their own solutions to the problem. And we're going to see as we go through four different ways that they try to do it on their own and try to fix the problem. So the first thing it says there, every man cried out to his God. Every man, they all had... There's no one excluded. However many people were on the boat, nobody's excluded. Every single person, all had their own god, a different god that they were crying out to for help. Whatever, whatever, whatever that was, whoever that was to them. Not a single person was not crying out. Well, except for Jonah, but we'll get there. But whether it's the it was the god of their country or of their city or their weather, like they were whoever they worshipped, they were just crying out to help for help. This kind of general address to heaven as everybody's voices are crying out to just kind of just whoever they worship random gods, this general address to heaven asking for help. And I kind of commend them for this in some ways. Honestly, because the issue isn't necessarily what they're doing, but rather who they who they believe is on the receiving end of what they're doing. Right? Crying out to God is not the wrong thing. It's just crying out to the wrong god. And shouldn't this be our first response when a storm arises in our lives too? I mean, if the pagans can do it, can't we? Surely we can cry out to God. Surely that should be our first response. the psalmist all throughout the book writes so many different ways that he mentions this and and speaks to this truth. But in in Psalm 18, verse six, he writes, In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him, even to his ears. And in James 5.13, Will was reading it and referring to it this morning, but it mentions, uh, maybe not this far down, but in verse 13, it mentions, is anyone among you suffering? Let him try it on his own to fix his own problem. No, that's not what it says. It says, if anyone among you suffering, let him pray. That's the first thing you do in response to suffering. Let him pray. But what do I normally do? Immediately, I'm starting to look for a solution on my own. I'm, I'm, I'm like, that's just how I'm wired. And it drives my wife insane because I'm always trying to fix her problems and I'm fi- trying to fix other people's problems. And immediately I'm just like, well, if, you just, if we just did this, this, and this, or you know, we'll make a list, we'll check it twice. We'll do all this kind of stuff to overcome this storm that's going on in our lives. And when I got some of the news this week that kind of put my life back into a storm of sorts, I was so encouraged because my first response this time around was I just kind of got up and I went outside and I took a walk and I cried out to God. And I was like, oh, okay, good. I am growing in the grace of God. Like, okay, I'm going in the right direction. I'm not who I used to be, but the temptation is still there to kind of hold on to it and try to fix the problem on our own. But crying out to God should naturally be our first response whenever we are entering into a storm or whenever we have any sort of suffering going on in our lives. So that's the first thing that they try to do to fix the problem. And the second thing they do, it says, and they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. They just got rid of everything. I really, I really see this as this God helps those who help themselves kind of mentality. Right? Like if if we just will throw all the cargo overboard, then maybe our God will save us. If we help ourselves, if we do enough, God will meet us there. I mean, we've all kind of seen this in movies, right? Like their ships are sinking and they're throwing crates and boxes and people overboard to make the, the boat lighter so it doesn't sink. This was all their goods, all the things that they had brought with them to Tarshish to whether it be for profit or trade, it's all going into the sea. They dump it all. And this is a very human, natural reaction to this kind of a situation. right? This is that survival instinct in human nature. And and we have uh, other references in Scripture of this happening, of Acts chapter 27, as Paul is being taken as a prisoner to Italy after he appeals to Caesar. (laughs) There, probably the longest journey of his life. But in verse 10 of chapter 27, it says, Man, I perceive that this voyage—this is Paul talking— I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. So Paul knows right away, he's telling them this is going to happen. If we continue in this direction, this could possibly— we could possibly lose our lives. Not only that, but we're going to lose all the cargo, too. But in verse 18, All that comes to fruition. It says, because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they'd lighten the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. So this is just a natural response to that type of a situation, but it's also just kind of a natural reaction in our humanistic nature is this idea of self-preservation. That I'm willing to sacrifice whatever it would have profited me originally to save my own life. I'm willing to throw it all overboard if it means my life is saved. And that is not at all what the Lord calls us to as believers, is this idea of self-preservation. If anything, he calls us to self-obliteration, right? A complete denial of self. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. In Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, verse 34 says, When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's powerful stuff. That is powerful word. If we live lives ashamed of who he is, ashamed of his word, then he says that he will be ashamed of us. That's why we have to deny ourselves. That's why we have to live this idea, this mentality of self-obliteration, a complete and total surrender, absolute surrender, kind of like what Will was talking about this morning, to the Lord. And I would ask you this evening, if there's any area in your life, in your heart, that maybe you've been preserving, fighting to preserve, when the Lord wants you to obliterate it. Whether that be a sinful pleasure that you are not designing yourself, maybe you're just indulging it, you're just feeding it, giving your flesh whatever it desires to just to gratify it. Whether it be the pursuit of a selfish gain or, or just simply focusing on an earthly temporal preservation, whatever it, be, it might be, the Lord is asking us, if it gets in the way of our relationship with him, we're to obliterate it. We're to deny it. Deny our flesh what it desires. So that's how the, the mariners are reacting to the storm. And our hero, the one who caused all the mess to begin with, is fast asleep. And Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. The lowest parts of the ship. Has anyone, has anyone been like in the lowest parts of a ship before? No? Yeah, one. Where were you? Uh, <laughs> if you've been in a boat or a cruise... I mean, when the water is a little rough, is the lowest part of the ship, the calmest part of the ship? I'll just tell you, because none of you answered. No, it's not. No, (laughs) it's not the calmest part of the ship. That is where you feel it the most, is in the lowest part of the ship. You're getting whipped around. If you're walking around in the lowest part of the ship, you're doing kind of one of these things, okay? If if the water is rocky, it is not calm by any means, Actually, I think it's ironic that my brother's here this evening because I was going to use him as an example. And I'm still going to. <laughs> uh, no, we were in a, an ROTC program when we were in high school. Or, yeah, high school-ish. And he went to a Coast Guard training. And if I remember correctly, now he can correct me. You see, I should have never done this. They would make them go into the lowest part of the ship just so they would... Yeah, I don't have to say it. You get it to understand what it felt like, to know how to to fight it, to, to fight it, to understand like this is how it is down here. If you're going to be down here, you got to figure out how to, to function still at the lowest part of the ship when it's rocky out there. And even in the midst of that, Jonah's just sawing logs. Like it's the fastest ship in the rockiest part of the boat in this crazy supernatural storm. I will defend my boy Jonah for just one minute though. On one account, so if he's left Joppa, where he went down to Joppa and he found a ship going there to Tarshish, right? If he left to go there from his home in Gath that which would be his hometown, we don't know if that's where he left from, but it's a 60-mile journey. So let's just assume it's around a 60-mile journey before he got on, on the boat. Now, physically, that's a very tiring journey back in those days. So I can understand that he would be physically exhausted by the time he got into the boat. However, 60 miles is a long way to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because I have no doubt the Lord is convicting him every step of the way. Jonah, what are you doing? Jonah, turn around. Where are you going? I gave you a command. Why are you running from me? What do you possibly think is going to happen? Like, I, can, I, just, I know, I'm just trying to put myself in his shoes. That's how the Lord works with me. He's faithful to convict us when we're running away from him. 60 miles is a long time to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And yet Jonah is able to do it. And that phrase fast asleep, the, the idea of the phrase in, in the Hebrew language is, is this having a security of mind, right? This having this peace of mind. Now scripture is clear when we ignore the warnings and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that God is not going to break our free will. He's going to allow us to make those decisions and follow through with whatever the, the consequences of our decisions are. But what has happened here is that Jonah has ignored the conviction so much that now he is in a position of careless self security to the point where he's able to fall asleep. And this is exactly how the enemy works in our lives, is an incredibly effective tactic and policy that he has, and he uses it to destroy us. When we become complacent and tolerate sin in our lives, and God in his mercy does not bring immediate punishment or chastisement, Satan uses that opportunity to rock us to sleep in a false sense of security. That's how the enemy works. And as a, just as a side note, we, can, we should never mistake God's mercy for his allowance or acceptance of sin. Just because God is merciful doesn't mean he's okay with it. And it's easy for the, in those moments when we've, we've ignored the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we're in a place of, of, of false self-security, of just this peace of mind thinking, and we lie to ourselves thinking, well, God's okay with it because I haven't been judged yet. And that's exactly how the enemy uses it. Well, nothing has happened yet. I mean, how bad can the sin really be? Like God's not punishing you, so it must be okay. I mean, surely if God wanted to correct you, he could, so you must be in an okay spot. it's a very dangerous place for us to be in and the side effect of that is also that we become unaware or unconcerned with how our sin does affect others around us just like Jonah unaware and unconcerned fast asleep peace of mind with his decision when we individually or even the church as a whole are in that place spiritually we need someone to wake us up to the consequences of our actions, just like Jonah does in verse six. And so the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Call, call on your God. I mean, how can, <laughs> how can you be asleep at a time like this? Everyone else has cried out to your gods or to their gods. Maybe if you cry out to your God, Something different will happen. Maybe he'll respond differently. Perhaps your God will consider us. That phrase, consider us, just it means to give thought towards someone. It's pretty much he's saying all of our gods haven't given a single thought about us and they don't seem to care that we're perishing. Maybe your God will. Maybe your God is different. Cry out to your God. And I believe that this is a picture and message for the body of Christ today is to wake up to what is going on around us every other religious person on the boat was crying out to their gods faithfully and the only one with a relationship with the one true God is sound asleep we as a church need to wake up don't be a sleepy Christian (laughs) don't just be okay with the status quo don't just be comfortable in sin don't just live in fear because the enemy is pressing around you on every single side. Don't be indifferent to all that is going around you in the world. We read in our scripture reading, our salvation is near at hand than <laughs> the day we started. And Paul wrote that then, 2,000 years later, we are that much closer to our salvation. But he exhorts us, wake up. I love what David Guzik said about this. He said, Jonah slept in a peace where he hoped no one would see him or disturb him. Sleeping Christians like to hide out among the church. Jonah slept in a place where he could not help with the work that needed to be done. Sleeping Christians stay away from the work of the Lord. Jonah slept while there was a prayer meeting up on the deck. Sleepy Christians don't like prayer meetings. Jonah slept and had no idea of the problems around him. Sleeping Christians don't know what really is going on. Jonah slept when he was in great danger. Sleeping Christians are in danger but don't even know it. Jonah slept while the heathen needed him. Sleeping Christians snooze on while the world needs their message and testimony. And you might say well uh, Eric I'm uh, even from from Will's message this morning and like I, I'm I'm walking, you know, with the Lord. Guess what you can do in your sleep? Walk. But I'm I'm feeling so emotionally moved by the worship and the things that the Lord is doing in my life, like it just brings me to tears. Guess what you can do in your sleep? You can cry. This is a warning for ourselves and our own hearts to check and say, Lord, have I been asleep? And if we have come to a place like Jonah where the world is asking the church to arise and wake up and call on your God, we have done something terribly wrong. And they may be too afraid to ask it directly. But in many ways, if we're we're listening to the things they're saying, and if we're looking at the way they live, indirectly, they're asking for us to wake up. Because they need it. They need the message of salvation. They need hope like we sang about this evening, an anchor for our soul. Not, not this like whimsical wishing for the best, but a blessed assurance to know that we know that we are saved and the Lord is coming back for us. Amen? That he is going to rescue us from everything that is going on in the world and those people are going to perish. They need a hope. And I pray that we don't deceive ourselves into thinking that we're awake when we're really not. And I'm not talking about being woke, okay? (laughs) By any means. I won't even go off on that. Okay. Charles Spurgeon said, when I speak of a wakeful man, I mean one who does not take the soul to be a fancy, nor heaven to be a fiction, nor hell to be a tale, but who acts among the sons of men as though these were the only substances and all other things were just shadows. I want men of stern resolution, for no Christian is awake unless he steadfastly determines to serve his God, come fair or come foul. And I pray those are the type of Christians we want to be that will steadfastly serve our Lord, come fair or come foul. And if I'm looking at the world, it's going to be a lot more foul maybe than there is fair out there. And Jonah has an open door to cry out to his God. The world is asking him, the pagan is asking him to cry out to his God. He has an open door to be a witness, to glorify the Lord in this way, but instead he just joins in the next man's solution of trying to solve the problem. In verse seven, the third thing that the men try to do to fix it, they says, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots in the lot, Fell on Jonah. These lots were, you know, just pebbles that they were used to systematically make decisions. In this case, trying to determine who was guilty of bringing this judgment upon them. I don't. I read this, and I'm curious as to what made this storm so different from the others that they had countered before. Like, if this was just like their natural reaction to a storm was like someone, someone did it. Let's, let's catch lots again to figure out who who's in trouble. Or maybe it was just superstition from their gods that they worship. I don't, you know, I don't know. They thought the gods were angry and so they sent a storm. Or maybe it was just the first time that their lives were actually in danger because of a storm. Or maybe there was just a sense of something supernatural in the storm. And I kind of lean more towards that one is there's must've been something supernatural about this that they were like, we're just, we got, something's wrong. Somebody here's in trouble. And it was all driven by fear though, wasn't it? It's was all driven by fear, not trusting the Lord. And the same is for us. If we're not trusting in the Lord and living in fear, our response will be the same as these men. It will be. Our immediate reaction will not be to cry out to God if we're living in fear. Our immediate action will be to try to find the logical, natural, self-preserving solution. But they cast the lots and it says the, the lot fell on Jonah. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking if I'm Jonah, like we already know the ship's rocky, right? Like, Pebbles are round. They roll. Like if they're shaking and they roll the thing and it like rolls off and Jonah's like, nah, that wasn't me. Roll it again. Like obviously it's rocking around a little bit. Let's try to figure out dice roll off the table. And when the ground is firm and it's not moving anywhere, but a lot falls on Jonah and then they interrogate him. In verse 8, they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I mean, they just, jump, they just pounce on him. What are you doing here? What is going on? What job are you disobeying? What do you do for a living? What's your heritage? Let's figure out how to resolve this problem. Let's, do we need to kill you? Do we need to save you? But I love Jonah's response. He says, I'm a Hebrew. He could have said he was an Israelite, but he decides in his response to not be affiliated with the idolatry of the Israelites because that's exactly what the other men were doing, worshiping God, crying out to God's idols, who knows. But he says, I'm a Hebrew. And even more than that, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I serve the Almighty God, the creator of the universe. I also find it interesting that he says this because he says, I fear the Lord, and yet his actions don't really prove that statement. No, cho- no choice that he has made so far proves that he actually fears the Lord in that sense, in revering the Lord and respecting his word, wanting to live by his judgments, his commandments, his statutes. But he says, I fear the Lord. So it's in his heart. He, re, I, he knows, but his actions don't prove it. And maybe by, by this point and what's going on, he, he's repented, but either way, even though it is tragic when a believer's life contradicts the word of God, I'm so grateful that God can still receive the glory if the believer only simply tell the truth about who God is. That even if my life, if my life is contradiction to his word, and people know who I am as a follower of Christ, all I have to do is simply tell them the truth about who God is. And he still receives the glory from that. Verse ten Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So Jonah tells them why he's on the ship. To flee from the presence of the Lord. He doesn't want to serve the Lord in this way anymore. And it says there that they were exceedingly afraid. Like they were afraid before, but now they're like afraid, afraid. Like it's only getting worse. They know that he's a prophet. They're asking him all these questions, assuming he responds. They know that he's a prophet of Jehovah. And he's running from the service to the Lord they think they're dead. (laughs) Judgment is upon us. This man is running from his service to the Lord and he's bringing us down with him. But they ask him, why have you done this? And I think that's a fair question given the circumstances. But doesn't the Lord gently rebuke us and ask us the same thing? I know he does for me. why, Why have you done this, Eric? Why did you talk to your kids like that? Why'd you get angry at that person for acting that way? They don't know me. They don't know any better. Why'd you try to do that on your own instead of seeking my face and seeking my word? Why'd you try to be self-sufficient? You know you can't do it. You're not sufficient of yourself. Paul writes, our sufficiency comes from God. And even more so in my heart and in my, in my mind, And you know, we ask, why, why did you think that way about that person? I love them. Why can't you love them? It's a fair question for the Lord to ask us too. It's also a fair question for an unbeliever to ask us if they know that we follow Christ and we're not acting like it. Ooh. Ooh, that's the rebuke that hurts the most sometimes. <laughs> You're all gung-ho for Jesus and then you, a part of your flesh comes back and you, and you give in and, a, and an unbeliever sees it. Why, why did you do that? I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were so spiritual. So much better than everybody. Obviously, their perspective is twisted. They don't understand. But the rebuke hurts. Because we know, oh, I blew it. My conduct is supposed to be set apart. He said, be holy for I am holy. And I just, I just blew my witness. There's, of course, there's grace. I'm so grateful for that because I've blown that so many times. It says in verse 11, they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? What, what do we do to make it stop? What, what's the solution? I mean, it's only getting worse out there. Verse 11 goes on, for the sea was growing more tempestuous. It's just, it, I don't even know how they even, water's coming over the side. I don't know. They're going up and down. Sails are getting ripped. Who knows? But It's getting worse. Well, they ask this question, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? Or if we put it another way, they're asking, what must we do in order to be saved? They're asking, what must we do in order to be saved? And Jonah responds, verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you for I know that this great tempest is because of me. And in this verse alone, we see a beautiful truth of the doctrine of salvation displayed throughout scripture. And that is that all it takes for everyone to be rescued is for one man to pay the price. All it takes for everyone to be rescued is for one man to pay the price. And I don't, I don't know why he thinks this will work. <laughs> Maybe he's forcing himself into a complete dependency on God. Where he's just throwing me overboard and let the Lord have his way with me. Come hell or high water, literally. Like, <laughs> just, I'm, I'm going to throw myself onto him. I've been running from him for too long. Maybe he's finally repented. and He knows that anything is better than continually running from God. Like, I just, I'd rather go overboard and trust the Lord. And he can take my life or he can save it. Maybe it's just out of compassion for the sailors. Like he knows, he realizes that his life is now what has put them in danger. And out of compassion for the lost, he's willing to be sacrificed. Because There's no indication here that he has any idea what's going to happen when he hits the water. (laughs) Like, is he just going to be taken away with the waves? I mean, he's going to be pulled under by the current. But what is evident is that he's done thinking about himself. And finally considers how his actions will affect others, even if it does cost him his life. That didn't used to be the case. <laughs> he didn't care how his actions affected the, the, the sailors, the mariners at first. He's saying, I'm willing to die if it means you will live. Pick me up, throw me in the sea, and then it's going to be calm for you. And aren't you glad that the Lord did not think about himself when he went to the cross? Jesus said, put, put me up on the cross. Put nails in my hand. That's going to mean salvation for you. I'll go there in your place. I'll be sacrificed for you. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. So here's the fourth thing he the fourth thing that we see the men trying to do to fix the problem on their own, even though Jonah has given them a solution, they're saying, nah. And so we're just going to keep rowing harder and harder to try to beat the storm. They couldn't because the sea continued to grow even more tempestuous against them. They could not save themselves. It has not worked out for them yet. Has it? They've tried crying out to their gods. They tried throwing all the cargo overboard and they tried casting lots And now they're trying this as well. The message of salvation is stop trying to do it your own way. You're only going to wear yourself out and you'll be no better off for it. You're just going to have to keep trying or keep figuring out some other way. And the Lord says, I gave you a solution. Jonah's saying, I'm giving you a solution. You have to throw me overboard. But man is trying to do it on their own. And in some ways, I'm sure they're thinking like, that's just, that can't be it. Like that's an outlandish solution to this problem. But it also seems way too easy. Like we're just going to dump this guy and then all of a sudden we're going to be saved. How, how, could, how could that possibly, in, in their logical way of thinking, trying to reason this out, how could that even make sense that that would be the solution to, to what, what saves them? In Second Corinthians eleven three, Paul writes, but I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve with his craftiness, So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ, and we have to be careful to not fall into that same kind of mentality of these of sailors and thinking, "How could that possibly be it?" Have you ever talked with an unbeliever and shared the gospel with them, and and their response is, "Well, that's too easy, that's too simple. There's got to be more than that." No, that's it. It is. Oh, that can't be it. No, it is. (laughs) That's it. It's the cross. It's not Jesus and anything. It is Christ alone, the means of salvation. I mean, just like these sailors are figuring out, I mean, praise God, it's nothing else on our part or else we'd never be saved. We just keep trying. They just keep trying. It's not working. Paul writes in Galatians chapter one, verse six, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ turning away to what? To a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As if that didn't get the point across, verse nine, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. If an angel showed up on this boat right now and said, you've tried these four things, You just got to try this one other thing and it's fix the sails. Another gospel, another way, man's way, trying to figure it out on his own. It can't work. It can never, ever save us. It can never, nothing they could do could save them. They had to listen to the, the plan, the solution that Jonah had given them. Verse 14 says, Therefore, Oh, I'm sorry, verse 13. Nevertheless, oh yeah, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not for the sea continue to grow more tempestuous against them. Because of that, they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And if that word is capitalized, the word Lord there is capitalized in your Bible, that's the, the word Jehovah, right? Now, that, this is not just some God anymore they're talking about. They're specifically talking about Jonah's God, the one true God. And they cry out, Do not let us perish. Christ died so we could live. And then they cry out, Do not charge us with innocent blood. Christ was the innocent one. We are guilty. We should have been charged. He went to the cross on our behalf. In Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes, we are healed. He died in our place, the innocent one for the guilty. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Further on, Isaiah 53, it says, verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. One of my favorite verses, Hebrews 12:2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Praise God. He endured the cross, knowing what it would mean for us. Absolute surrender to the Father's will knowing it was the only way. And so the men finally obey what the man of God has commanded him to do. In verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. As soon as Jonah hits the water, silence, stillness, peace, salvation, By this happening, it just proves that Jonah's God was real. It just proved that Jonah's God was the one true God. Jonah's God actually, listen, Jonah's God had a solution for their salvation. His self-sentence of saying, throw me over so that way you can live was right all along. And they realized, (laughs) because if he's real, then he's worthy of our worship. So verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. They see what Jonah's sacrifice did. And the first thing they do is they believe in the Lord. They offer a sacrifice. I don't, I don't know what they had left, if they're throwing everything overboard. But whatever it was, I, I'm sure it pleased the Lord. Maybe it was like an IOU from the Lord. Or to the Lord, anyways. Like, all I've got is this rat, but eventually I'll give you the cow. <laughs> Like, well, this is all we've got now, Lord, but I promise I'm going to make it right when we get to land. But the point is they gave whatever they had and surrendered it to the Lord. And I'm sure we'll see these men. I'm, I'm confident in what I'm, that we'll see these men in heaven and we'll get to ask them all about it someday. But this is where their story ends in verse 16. It ends with salvation, with their Salvation. But God's not done dealing with Jonah. In verse 17, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. When you picture this, this is a bizarre scene, and we're very familiar with it. But as you think about it, it makes no sense, or it's just really weird. The sea sea is it's going, you're going crazy. It's getting worse and worse. Like you can't even stand up. Water's coming to the side. They throw Jonah off the side. <laughs> See, he's flat. It's calm. How far can you throw a grown man? Like maybe 10, 15 feet. Like he's just floating. He's treading water right there. And they're like, well, that, that worked. What, what are we going to do? Like a fish just like takes him under. Like, that's what happens. That's what's going on right now. What? That's so weird. Can you imagine? Maybe they cried out to God even more after that point. <laughs> what just happened? We murdered this guy. <laughs> he didn't say that would happen. Oh well, row, 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 back to land. <laughs> that's weird. The Bible's crazy, man. I want like some accurate portrayal movies made of some of these stories, the realistic things like what's what that's insane. But it says the Lord had prepared a great fish and whether that means a specific fish for this purpose or he's just using one of his already created creatures, a whale or something to go swallow Jonah. This, it always confused me. Like if we believe in a God of miracles, why is there so much debate over this verse? I don't know if you've read some of this like back and forth. Is it possible? Let's measure the inside of a fish's stomach. Let's go on. Is it like let's self-swallow? There's actually a guy. I think it was like a year or two ago, in Cape Cod, Boston lobster fisherman swallowed by a whale two years ago. The, the headlines literally called it a biblical event. <laughs> and he was in there for like 30 seconds. That's it. Like, oh my gosh, it's possible. The Bible's true. Scuba gear and all. Jonah just had a cloak. It's just sliding down so easily. The, the balance, like, you know, genuine desire to know the word better is one thing, but trying to rationalize a miracle just seems absurd. But there have been stories there of men getting swallowed by whales. There's plenty of creatures out there large enough to do it. That's a fun research homework for you, if you want to. Anyways. But it says he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And if I'm not mistaken, we've heard that somewhere before. In Scripture, <laughs> now the, the the phrase itself doesn't mean a, an exact seventy two hours, like from the all, all of one day, all of one night, all of one day, all of one night. You know that kind of that kind of way. This is just kind of a, a Hebrew expression to to designate time. It just really means a, a portion of a whole day would still be considered a whole day. So at least a portion of a whole day, three portions of a, of days and three portions of nights. He was in there, and that's also why. I know it talks about Jesus being in the tomb, right? Three days and three nights, but some people are like, "Whoa, that's not possible because... Okay, no, just a Hebrew expression. You just understand and it makes more sense. But anyways, it's so so cool. Turn to Matthew 12 and you guys probably know where I'm going with this because where else would you go? Matthew 12, verse 39 and we'll read the account in Luke as well. But verse 39 of Matthew 12. But he answered, this is Jesus, the, some of the, verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, haven't I seen and shown enough signs? No, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the of the earth. In the account in Luke, chapter eleven, verse twenty nine, it says while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, This is an evil generation, it seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Listen, if you, first of all, if you've got a problem with the whole three day and three nights thing, just take it up with the Lord, because he's the one that confirmed it was three days and three nights. Alright, that's from the mouth of Jesus himself. And what Jesus is saying there to the Pharisees as they're asking him is like, if, if all the signs that I've done up to this point have not proven to you that I am God, then I, I, don't know what, I don't know what will. But here's what's going to happen. The son of man is going to be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. That's a sign. That is a sign that I am God. And that sign that Jesus is talking about, referring to Jonah here, is that death did not hold Jonah and it wouldn't hold him either. Even though Jonah offered his life to appease God's wrath, his life was preserved and he was set free. Just as the Lord did on our behalf to appease the wrath of God and his just and holiness cannot just let sin go unpunished. And of course, his life was preserved. He was resurrected. He conquered sin and death and he was set free. So as we begin to close this evening, chapter one, by the grace of God, God of, God of miracles, I realize something to me is really cool. Maybe you've already picked up on it and you're like, I noticed that right away. We know then in this last verse here, Jonah being in the belly of the fish, points to Christ being in the grave and resurrecting and him conquering death. But what I see through this entire first chapter It all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. We see God's rescue plan for humanity hiding in plain sight. Right there for all of us to see. Starting from the beginning, man's natural instinct is to run from God. As a result, man encounters trouble and punishment when he tries to do that. Man tries his own way to save himself and can't. We saw that in the sailors. God reveals that salvation for all men must come from the sacrifice of one man. When man cries out to God to save him and accepts God's plan of salvation, God honors that and he is saved. And that's only possible because one man endures the punishment for all. That's what we see here. It all points to Jesus, this entire chapter. This is the gospel on display for everyone to see. It's not hidden. The gospel is not hidden. It's not for the spiritually elite. It's there for anyone to accept, to show us, to say, you can't do it on your own. Turn to the Lord. Accept that He is the only way of salvation. He went to the cross for you. He's the only one that could do that. The world needs to know that. He's the only one that can do it. Through one man's death, all of us can be saved. The way of salvation. God's message for all mankind. And this is the first part of the message that all mankind needs to hear. You know, I, I mentioned at the beginning of last week that I prayed that our hearts but we realize the first thing is to have understanding the responsibility, the duty, and the command that we have as a church to deliver the message of salvation to all people. That's what chapter one is. We have a duty to deliver this message. Don't have time to be sleepy Christians. We need to wake up if we've been asleep. And I'll end with some lyrics to a song from a band that I really enjoy, but if, the name of the song is called Wake Us Up. And they say, we're done with dead religion. We're done with playing games. We want to see your power consume our church today. Pour fuel upon the fire so the lost may see the light. Lord, come, replace your lampstand. Lord, hear your people cry. Wake us up, Holy Spirit, wake us. And that is my prayer this evening. I, and I trust and pray that is yours as well in the areas where maybe you've been a, asleep Let's be awakened to the things that are going on around us and to the ways the Lord is trying to work in our heart and our lives so we can take this message that is hiding in plain sight for every man to hear. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Father, I thank you that with just a little bit of study here, the thread of your gospel is sown throughout the entirety of Scripture. That it all points to you. Lord, how glorious that we have been created for such a time as this on on the receiving end of your work, of the cross, of the blood that you shed for us, of your resurrection, that you have conquered sin and death for us, Lord, that death is now on our side because the enemy cannot even use it as a threat against our lives. Father, there is an evil and wicked generation out there that needs to know of your love and your grace. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would be awakened to these things. Give us your eyes, give us your heart, give us your ears to hear what others are saying, to hear what you're saying to us, Lord, that are telling us how you want us to go out into the world, how you want us to put our hands to the plow, to occupy until you return, to do it with a sense of urgency, Lord. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Father, thank you for your faithfulness towards us. Thank you for saving us, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Thank you that it, at its surface level, it's such a simple way to be saved. That we don't have to do anything to add to it. That we couldn't do it on our own. And I pray, Lord, for those of us here tonight, maybe who have been trying to do it in our own strength, not in, in the means of salvation, Lord, but just trying to do life, trying to go through the storm in our own strength. I pray that we would just simply surrender to you and that you pull us through. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. We offer the rest of this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.